if you hadn't been with Kate and the two of you together, do you think any of this would have happened? Oh, no. No. I see it as, as providence. The jigsaw came together and too many things worked. It's an interesting word, providence. The Oxford English Dictionary defines it as the protective power of God or of nature as a spiritual power and also the timely preparation for future eventualities. And when you hear the story of how John O'Loughlin Kennedy here, his wife Kay and a small group of people got together in 1968 to see how they could help starving Biafrans, you see what he means about Providence having a hand in things. There were quite a number of good decisions that we made along the way that turned out to be good decisions afterwards for reasons that we really didn't know at the time. From a small flat in Dublin, this group started a chain of events that saved the lives of millions of people and that still has enormous global impact. Kay died about a year and a half ago and uh, the only thing I could say when she died was that I'd married the right girl. This is SOS, How Ireland Helped a Nation. Episode 2, Providence. Nobody wanted the war, so nothing quite happened the way it should have happened in real life. The situation that had been imposed on Biafra in 1967 was the result of the complete opposite of Providence. Instead of being guided by a protective power, Biafra was being bombed, invaded and ripped apart by Nigeria, the country from which it declared independence in 1967. By the end of that year, people in Biafra were dying horrible deaths from starvation. The entire country had been ring-fenced by the Nigerian army, almost like a medieval siege. A RARC documentary broadcast on RTE in the late 60s described what that starvation looked like. Day after day in Biafra, the unending search for food goes on. The village restaurants still display their grandiose names to the passers-by, but their prices have soared and their menus have shrunk almost to vanishing point. There's nothing to drink except palm wine, nothing to eat except some fruit and vegetables, and even to buy these you need a very well-filled purse. You'll remember from episode one that one of the first Irish people to bring back news from Biafra was a Holy Ghost missionary, a priest called Raymond Kennedy. Raymond's brother John and John's wife Kay held a press conference at the end of 1967 to show the world what was going on. But they hadn't reckoned with politics. Their story was suppressed by the Catholic Church and the Irish government, who were worried that Irish missionaries and Irish business interests in Nigeria would be attacked if word of the Biafran war got out. Those in power, it seems, were not about to tell the world about Biafra. And so Kay and I decided we'd have to try and do something about it. It was at this point, John said much later, that he got that first sense of providence, that this thing he was doing was fate whatever this thing was. And so, one of the first things that he and his wife Kay did was to call a meeting in their flat in Northumberland Road in Dublin. 
we had a big sitting room. The flat was in a Victorian house, so the sitting room was large as sitting rooms in flats would go. <laughs> we were taken aback. About 40 people turned up and they were sitting on the bookshelves and they were standing and they were standing in the hallway and uh, listening to what was going on. So many things happened providentially, but one of them, the first, was that on the day when we were going to have the meeting, two Biafran chiefs turned up in Dublin. They had come out on a relief flight. There were relief flights were running by that stage. And so they came to the meeting and they told us what was going on at home. And uh, that was what made us decide, well, something has to be done about it. After that first meeting, that small group of about 40 people were really enthusiastic about helping Biafra, even if they didn't know exactly what they'd be able to do. We met every Tuesday, and the first few meetings weren't exactly exciting. But then things started to happen. We knew that they needed medical supplies in Nigeria, so we sent some fibrinogen or something. Then one or two people gave us money anonymously, and uh, a girl on the committee wrote to the Irish Times say thank you to the anonymous donors. And the effect of that was to bring in more donations because people wanted to do something about Biafra, but they didn't know how to do it. So this emboldened John and Kay, and they made more plans. They joined forces with the Knights of Columbanus, and together they decided to launch an organised campaign to raise money for Biafra. And once again, Providence waved in John's direction. As we were planning the appeal, we heard that Bishop Whelan, a Limerick man who was Bishop of Oweri in Biafra, was coming out. And then there was a Protestant lady on our committee who knew that the Anglican Bishop of Oweri was already out in Hall in England. So we invited him to come on the platform and launch the appeal with Bishop Whelan. So... On the 28th of June, 1968, a Catholic bishop and a Protestant bishop walked into a hall to make an appeal on behalf of Biafra. Now, people don't quite understand it now, but in 1968, that was a momentous thing to do. That was huge. The probability is that never since the Reformation had an Anglican bishop and a Catholic bishop stood on the same platform in Dublin to sing from the same hymn sheet. So we all stood up and some people held hands and we said the Lord's Prayer together. And it was an electric moment that will never be lost in my memory. And for some of us at least, the penny dropped if we could say our father together, then in some sense we were brothers and sisters and we were looking after our brothers, or try, hoping to look after our brothers and sisters who were in trouble in Biafra. There were about 350 people, I'd say, present. Uh, we took up a collection on the way out. We collected £500 pounds. The, at the end, 
That £500 is the equivalent of €10,000. And that was the response that we got. One detail of that meeting. It was a warm evening, June 28th. The bishops told us what the problem was. It was my turn to go up on the, the podium and tell everybody what we were going to do about it. Nobody remembers a word that I said on that occasion, but as I walked up to the podium, I took off my jacket and hung it on an empty chair. And everybody remembers that, because it was a gesture of, now lads, it's time to get down to work. And 40 years later, Tony Blair did the same thing at a, at a Labour conference. So I was rather pleased. <laughs> people at that launch heard what was happening in Biafra, how thousands were wandering the country looking for food, many of them sick or dying. And so it was that the joint Biafran famine appeal was made public. And the appeal was SOS, send one ship, and we reckoned that sending one ship would cost £100,000. That's the equivalent of about €2 million Euro in today's. To charter the ship and to fill it up. I think I was the only one in the room who believed that we could raise 100,000. To persuade the people at that meeting that we could raise 100,000, I divided the 100,000 up among the counties of Ireland. And you can call it providence, or you can call it good planning, but this was a stroke of genius because John sparked a friendly sort of inter-county rivalry. And when it came to raising money for Biafra, no county wanted to be outdone. So we got one contribution that I remember from a man who had lived in Dublin for 27 years, but he came from Roscommon, and he wanted his contribution credited to Roscommon and not to Dublin. You know, and so that again, that decision made for one reason turned out to be good, good for, for another reason. Over the course of the Biafran conflict, from 1967 to 1970, many other good things happened to help the joint Biafran famine appeal. For example, they met advertising executives who dreamt up snappy slogans for ads, which newspapers then ran for free. And all across the country, people held coffee mornings, bake sales and sponsored walks. Some students even held a sponsored fast in solidarity with the people starving in Biafra. I think in one of the, the books I have here, there's a, a picture. Carl Vikens, who himself made an enormous personal contribution to the Biafran campaign, we'll hear about that later, was 16 at the time. He remembers how everyone was involved, even people who had very little. He's looking at a picture that was published in the Irish Times in 1968. And it just shows you a jumble sale being held in Sheriff Street in Dublin. The people have some clothes hanging on the rails there. And you can see the people themselves, they're not, not very, very wealthy people, but they, they obviously recognise the plight of the Biafrans and they decided to raise, uh, sell clothing and sell items to try and raise some money for the, for the people of Biafra. 
People helped in whatever way they could. Take Michael Goss, for instance. He'd been at that first meeting in John and Kay's flat. And uh, there were, the request came that they were looking for milk. And the Irish government had said, no, milk was not to be allowed. Uh, you needed a licence to get uh, dried milk. And the minister in charge, a fellow called Frank Aiken, and he was totally opposed to the Biafran carry-on. And he didn't want to to do it, so therefore he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't agree to this licence. So, in Michael's own words, he decided to take the bull by the horns. And I knew that Mitchellstown Creameries had dried milk. And I went down to Mitchellstown and asked to see somebody, what do you want? And I said, I'm looking to buy some um, milk. Now, milk was a very expensive... As far as I remember, it was about well over a thousand pounds a ton. I'm only going just from memory, and uh, no, no, we can't do, we can't do that. And anyway, I was just walking out, and I met this guy that worked in the in in the creamery, and I said to him, "Do you know how I get some dried milk? They won't give it to me inside." They said because they're not allowed to send it to Biafra. And he said, "Where is it going?" I said, "It's going out of the Holy Ghost." And he said, uh, well, sure, my brother was a priest out in the Holy Ghost. I'll have to give you milk. And he gave me three bags, quarter of a ton. And I thought, holy God. And I said, what are you going to charge me? Get out the hell out of here. He said, that's it. And I had three bags of milk. The Evening Herald had started its own fund. Des Mullen remembers how newspapers like the Evening Herald started raising funds too. And uh, it was amazing in the, in the Herald, the way the whole thing took off. It was absolutely brilliant. Des was a journalist with the Evening Herald, and he remembers how every child who donated money was invited into the newspaper office in Dublin to have their photos taken. Up out on the roof, and all the kids, they were queuing up the stairs. This is up to three storeys and out on the roof, got the pictures taken. And this went on relentlessly every day. And it used to annoy a lot of the people working in there. They have been queuing up the stairs and out on the street. And it went on and on and on for months. and you know, Went on for years while the war was on. We passed the target in the first week of August. During the course of the war, which went on for another two years, we raised approximately three and a half million pounds, which is the equivalent of between 60 and 70 million euro in today's terms, from a standing start with no money. Looking back at it now, it seems really extraordinary that a country so far away from Biafra would be moved to give so much. Until you remember a couple of things. Ireland had a huge missionary presence in Africa, and almost everyone knew someone who'd been on the missions there. So news about Africa did resonate with Irish people. But also, this was the first time that images of a famine were beamed into people's lives through the new medium of television. Now, not every household had a television back in those days, but there was television shops 
where they would have banks and banks of televisions. So people would stand outside these shops looking at what was on the television. So you get news coverage and it would show you the, the pictures of the starving children. And I think that's what moved the people more than anything else when you see little children with arms the size of matchsticks and extended bellies that it just moved them to want to do something to help. Maybe it's a race memory of what famine means, but famine meant something to the people of Ireland and Africa meant something to the people of Ireland. And, you know, I was hungry and you gave me to eat meant something to the people of Ireland. Some of those images and reports that moved the Irish people so much were sent back by Irish reporters. In July 1968, a month after the Joint Biafran Famine Appeal was launched, Des Mullen was sent to Biafra for his paper, The Evening Herald. I hadn't a clue where I was going. I remember one night I was working late in the office around about 11 o'clock, and it suddenly struck me that I hadn't a will made. <laughs> and my poor wife Angela, I hadn't. Yeah, it was all sprung on us, you know. So I typed out a short way, leaving everything to Angela. So that was the only bit of anxiety. But if I'd known what I know now and reading all these things, and all the people who actually were killed on those flights. The flights that Des is talking about were the humanitarian flights organised by a group of aid organisations from Catholic and Protestant churches. These flights were significant because they were part of one of the first operations that Catholics and Protestants performed together. There were planes that were on their way out, like at the time. Four DC, whatever they were, you know. <laughs> These flights originated in a small island off the west coast of Africa called Sao Tome, where they took on supplies. The Catholics and Protestants flew supplies in on alternating evenings. Des flew in on one of the Catholic flights, and it was a bit different to the flights that Raymond Kennedy and Dermot Dorn took into Biafra back in December 1967. Those flights had landed in Biafra's official airport in Port Harcourt. By this time, Port Harcourt had been taken over by Nigerian troops, so flights from Sao Tome were landing in a place called Uli. They flew at night to avoid the Nigerian anti-aircraft bombers who cruised the airspace, trying to shoot down anything that was flying into Biafra. But the big danger was when landing on this airstrip was just was just a long stretch of road with very little, uh, what do you call it, space each side for the planes. And the lighting was from uh, paraffin lights on the runway. In the late 1960s, one of the pilots, an American mercenary, told an Irish documentary crew what it was like. The airport in Biafra is pretty primitive. What are the problems for a pilot landing there? Well, the, uh, let's say the blackness for one thing, your, your lack of uh, any reference for depth perception for getting in. The runway is so narrow that uh, it looks longer than it really is. However, it was plenty long. It's, I think, over 7,800 feet long, but uh, 
being as narrow as it is, it uh, is, a, let's say, a psychological problem. But in fact, they don't switch on the landing lights. Uh, and when do they switch them on? When we were coming in, they hardly seemed to be on at all. Well, they're not. Uh, they, they turn them off for every... Uh, as soon as the plane lands, the lights are turned off, and they're not turned on again until uh, the next plane reports that he is on final. And if uh, they don't turn them on, you don't find the runway. Occasionally, there was a crash, and pilots were killed, and travellers, you know, going in trying to help the missionaries and all those. Maybe it was just as well I didn't know anything about this until a long time later. By the time Des Mullen reached Biafra in July 1968, it was chaos. Millions of civilians were on the move, trying to get away from the fighting. There were shootings, attacks, and people moved along the main roads between villages and towns. They were barefoot and blistered, walking or sitting in wheelbarrows, and almost everyone was hungry. Around 650 refugee camps had been set up by this time, and many were run by missionaries, like the Holy Ghost Fathers and the Sisters of the Order of the Holy Rosary. Some of the camps housed up to 7,000 people, and almost everyone needed medical attention, Many people suffered from kwashiorkor, the heartbreaking condition that became associated with Biafra. This man is the sole survivor of his family. His wife and children have all died from kwashiorkor, and he himself has the distended stomach and swollen legs that are a sign of the disease. Medicine by itself is of no use to him. Unless he can be given the protein food that he lacks, he will certainly die. According to some estimates, up to 10,000 people were dying every day at this time, and 6,000 of them were children. Almost everyone in the camps needed medical attention. With Des Mullen on the plane was a group of retired Irish doctors who wanted to help. They visited a camp near the airstrip run by missionary nuns. A nice thing out of nowhere, it's bush country, people came out and they were in big, long lines. They could have been over a half a mile long, all queuing up. It was the first encounter with, we say, doctors. But the poor children were absolutely, you know, little skeletons. But the doctors had kept examining them and then injecting them with all kinds of stuff and giving them tablets and everything. Dad spent a month in Biafra, he sent back reports for his Irish readers with titles like Biafra Horror, Survival Against Impossible Odds or Children Starve to Death Amid Scenes of Abject Horror. He heard horrible stories of young girls in his school being raped by Nigerian soldiers. He couldn't help but think of his own daughters back in school in Dublin. And... The thought came into my head, Jesus, imagine if this was the scene in the school in, in Rohini, you know, what a horror it would be, you know. The more we went on, the worse it got. Fifty years later, though, one story in particular won't leave Des. On a later trip to Biafra, he bought a huge supply of Cadbury's chocolate in the airport shop in Sao Tome. 
the most foolish thing we ever did. They started handing out the chocolates. Within minutes, they were surrounded by hundreds of people. But the terrible thing was we were leaving and we had to, from the mission, you had to drive along along Avenue, boring, you know. And crossing this big field was this poor woman. And she had about three or four children. And she was trying to hurry. We had nothing left. And uh, Father Kevin said, look, there's no use stopping. We have nothing to give them. And the poor, poor woman stood there crying. I almost played down what I think of it. Back in Ireland, people were moved by the stories that Des and other journalists sent out of Biafra, and the Joint Biafra Famine Appeal continued to receive a steady stream of donations. The response was literally overwhelming. This incredible response was also driven by the stories generated by John's own team. We had better communications with Biafra than in ordinary peacetime. The blockade was there, but there was one chap in the area who was what was known as a shortwave radio ham. And the radio ham was a friend of Father Kevin Doheny's, and he made contact with a dentist in Holland. And the dentist worked out a way of linking the shortwave radio to the telephone, and he could dial through to Dublin. And so once or twice a week, we got to talk to Father Kevin Doheny. That meant that we had better communications, better information coming out of Nigeria than the news wires. So we started to issue press releases. To be more efficient, we got a telex, and then we would send our press release on that. And because we had the news sooner, we wore down any distrust and they started to use our press releases. Because if they got the story from Rogers three days later, they'd say, hey, well, we had that from Africa Concern on Tuesday. And that kept the famine alive in the public mind. By August, the joint Biafran famine appeal was ready to send a shipment to Biafra. So we chartered a ship called the Corback, and it came to Dublin on its way, it picked up some stuff in Belfast. The Northern Ireland Meat Marketing Board gave us dried skim milk, which was very important because it's a good source of protein and the real problem of famine in Biafra was protein deficiency. And so uh, it, it took on board the, that and then we had loads of stuff ready to go, two and a half thousand tonnes of stuff ready to go, and we loaded it in Dublin and o- off it went. The supplies were loaded into a plane in Sao Tome on the 24th of August 1968 and sent into Biafra via the same night flights that journalist Des Mullen had used. And like Des Mullen's flight, getting the supplies to Sao Tome was the easy part. 
In the next episode, we'll hear about how priests and missionaries had to become humanitarian workers and logistical experts to get food and supplies past the blockade and into Biafra. Planes crashed and people got killed. In fact, there was 27 bodies buried in the, in the cemetery there at Uli. And how the joint Biafran famine appeal went from strength to strength, bought a ship and found its voice as a humanitarian organisation. We used to say in the office that the Columkill was bought as a relief ship and that the greatest relief of all was when we sold it. <laughs> This podcast is a Concern Worldwide production. It was presented by Clara Hearn and produced by Colette Kinsella for Red Hair Media. <laughs>